I don't know that our culture encourages us enough to ask existential questions. What are we doing here? What makes the world the way it is? Where is everything going? Where are all the battles, all of the questions, all of the meaning? Where is this all going? Revelation has been answering that question chapter after chapter in highly symbolic language. Think of it this way, we've been walking through Revelation chapter by chapter, and it's been kind of like walking through an art gallery, and the exhibit is the king in the end, the coming of the king. We've seen some strange images, tried to understand what they mean through the book of Revelation. We've seen the church depicted as a lampstand in the temple. We've seen Jesus depicted in chapter 5 as a slain lamb with seven eyes. I mean, just imagine walking through an art gallery and seeing that picture. We've seen God's interaction of wrath depicted as bowls being poured out of angels' hands. We've seen the prayers of the saints shown to be incense, smoke rising up to God in worship. We've seen beasts that have seven heads. Ten horns, ten crowns. We've seen all kinds of images all through the book of Revelation, all showing us, explaining to us what is going on in the world. What is the reality in the world and in the future of the world behind the reality that we are experiencing? Today, we continue the walk through the book of Revelation, and we come to One of the chief images in the book of Revelation, a picture, a description, a a scene of Jesus himself. Just try to imagine the things that Marilyn just read for us if you were to see them portrayed in an art gallery. Jesus with eyes like a flame. Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. Many crowns on his head, a robe that's dipped in blood, names, king of kings, lord of lords, on his robe and on his thigh. Yes, maybe that means Jesus has tattoos, I don't know. Can you picture Christ this way? I think the way that this is working in this chapter As we walk through the book of Revelation, we see this image of Christ. John sees this, gives it to us that we might know Christ for who he is. And the way this sermon is going to work today is that we want to kind of look at that image, look at what John has seen and given to us, and seek to understand it. I don't know about you, I'm not very good at like art things. Like, I could go to an art gallery. I have no idea if this is a good painting or not. I have no idea. I see some of the art that's at sale for some of the the coffee shops around Austin. 
thousands of dollars on the wall at coffee shops, and I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure I could do that if I had an hour in my garage, right? It's just not even a picture of a person, but I don't know art, so I don't know. One of the things I'm thankful for is when you go to his historical museums or you go to art museums, you might see a little placard next to the display that tells you why this is so important, tells you the history of this painting, tells you what this painting means. That's my hope today, that we can look at Jesus Christ in this text and that the sermon would be kind of a let's seek to understand what this means so that we can leave with an appreciation of Jesus Christ. We can leave going, that's even more wonderful than I thought. I mean, the picture is stunning, but I leave with a sense of what it means and why it matters for me and for my life now. So as I preach this morning, we're going to begin, we'll see nine aspects of Jesus Christ in his eternal glory. So if you just imagine here, this picture of Christ we'll be seeing through this text, there's a little placard, there's nine bullet points right there that tell us different parts, explain to us what we should notice as we look at Jesus in this passage. And then we'll see the scene of the whole painting. We'll zoom back out from just the person of Christ and see what is the scenery that this is showing us and why does that matter for us. Let's pray. Father, we come now and we ask that you would help us understand more clearly ourselves, the world, where the world is headed, what matters in the world, why our lives matter, what is the end of right and wrong, where is this all going? As we look at the person of Jesus Christ, we pray that you would help us see it, see our place in it. Father, for your glory and for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. If you look at that little plaque there, the little plaque there, what John is showing us is specific things he wants us to see and notice about Jesus Christ, things that he mentions for us so that we can understand the vision itself. Chapter 19, verse 11, the first thing it says about Jesus himself is that he's sitting on this white horse and Jesus is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. The first thing he tells us about Jesus, he's faithful and true. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who has failed you? Who has let you down? Let me just ask you a few categorical questions here and just think if you can come up with anyone in your mind. Or maybe a moment. Has a spouse ever let you down? You can't say amen too loud if you're, if you're here with them. Of course they have. Has an elected official ever let you down? Just say amen. There's too much hope in our elected officials. There should have been a louder amen. Our elected officials have let us down so many times. Maybe your church has let you down. Maybe you've had a friend let you down. Maybe your adult children you were hoping would be more mature at this point, but they've let you down. Maybe your pastors have let you down. Perhaps no one has let you down in your mind. Maybe no one has let you down because you don't really trust anyone to begin with. Everyone is so messed up. You have no expectations for humanity. In fact, you only expect terrible things. You can't imagine a human being being the source of anything that's good or joyful or faithful Perhaps you are haunted 
by how much you have let so many people down. Be introduced to Jesus Christ. He is faithful and true. What is the church but a bunch of letdowns getting together to lift up the faithful and true Jesus Christ? Everything Jesus ever said that he would do, he's done. Unlike all other leaders, all other descendants of Adam throughout the course of history, throughout the story of the Bible, Jesus alone stands as faithful and true. Moses failed at faith and didn't enter the promised land. David failed at morality. Solomon, ironically, failed at wisdom. The disciples failed at faith and courage. Only Christ is faithful and true. This is best represented in his resurrection. Because as soon as Jesus' followers begin to realize that Jesus of Nazareth, this man from Galilee, that he, that he is the Christ, Jesus immediately began to teach them that he was going to suffer on the, Christ, on the cross and three days later raised from the dead. Well, is Jesus faithful and true? Is Jesus just blowing smoke? Is Jesus just, was there a hologram 2,000 years ago? Jesus rose from the dead as he said. That was the report at the end of Matthew. As he said, he has risen from the dead. He's faithful and true. If he's faithful and true to rise from the dead like he said, would he not be faithful and true in every word he's ever promised to us? It's Jesus who is faithful and true. We may and should be as faithful and true as we can to each other, but we will let each other down. Jesus is faithful and true himself. Be disappointed with every man, with every woman, but not Christ. If we are looking at Jesus and we are wondering if he is faithful, it is our own understanding of Jesus which needs to change. If we are wondering where God is, where is Christ, it is not Jesus' fault. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to come to the baseball game and not come. He's never said something, promised something that he did not and that he will not do. This is an opportunity for us to learn how we can love one another rather than idolize one another, rather than get so disappointed that my wife, my husband, my boss are always letting me down. Yeah, they're not Jesus. So we can love them knowing that Jesus is faithful and true, and I don't have to depend on someone else for that in my life. Jesus is faithful and true. Number two, he is the righteous judge who makes war. Chapter 19, verse 11, excuse me, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus' war is righteous judging of all people. Just think of all the things that need final, eternal, righteous discernment in the world. All the things that need Jesus to come and decide and conquer morally, ethically, power in in every way. This week, two people were born who were born a man and now identify as women were named the college champion female swimmer. And USA Today, Woman of the Year. 
And meanwhile, a media war rages on about Ukraine. Who's really to blame for the war in Ukraine? Is there really a righteous side? In Kingsland news headlines this week, Kingsland, Texas, a few miles from us, there's a librarian who's going to be suing her school because she was fired because she would not take transgender books out of elementary library. And this is just a few things running through the headlines this week. Just a few things this week. And we are debating and we're opining and we're writing and we're posting and we're tweeting and we're arguing and we've got all of our own personal wrongs, all of our own personal issues, all of our own personal problems with our, our families and our, our work. Have, have you been wronged? Have, have you been on the wrong side of immorality? Have you committed wrongs to someone else? Are we trying to still decide what is right and wrong? Jesus will come and in righteousness judge. Where is the world going? It is going in time toward a final righteous judgment of everything. The discernment, the opinions will all be wiped away. When Jesus finally in his righteousness judges the world. And his perfect righteousness that's in himself, his own moral character, his own divine nature will judge all men and women, all kingdoms, all laws, all crimes. He is the righteous judge. His judgments are not just another opinion piece. They're righteous. And in the end, when he comes to make war, all rivalry will end. All opinions will end and righteousness will stand. Number three, his eyes are like a flame. His eyes are like a flame of fire in verse 12. The third of these statements tells us that Jesus' sight is not hindered and that he sees all things. We will give an account to him. There are no compartments of our lives that Jesus does not see. There are no corners of our hearts that his flaming eyes do not search. Consider what eyes like a flame mean. When we see something with our eyes, it's described as an action we are doing. But we can actually see in the dark. I'm not a biologist, so if you want to come at me later, just go ahead. Just track with the illustration. Now, we, we can actually see in the dark. Even if your eyes are fully functional, if you are in a totally pitch dark room, you can't see anything. You have to receive light to see something. Something has to act on you for you to even receive sight. In that sense, though seeing is something that we do, it's kind of passive for us. It's actually like something kind of happening to us, and we just understand it or compute it in our minds. But not Jesus. He is the light. His eyes are like a flame. He sees you even when you are in the dark and your sins are in the dark and your thoughts are in the dark. He sees without the aid of outside light. His, his seeing isn't receiving light. His seeing is something Jesus truly does to us. His seeing needs no outside agents to understand. And he is, by the light in his eyes, it seems to be reflection on his moral purity he sees perfectly in righteousness. Jesus never reads the news and says, 
well, I wonder if this is all going to get sorted out right and wrong or not. He knows. He sees with righteousness in himself and in his eyes. Number four, there are many crowns on his head. Continuing in verse 12, and on his head are many diadems. Remember the, the beast that came to make war on Jesus Christ and the kings of the earth was the seven-headed, ten-horned beast representing different kingdoms and kings and rulers of the nations. But Christ is one. He is one head over all realms, one spiritual leader of everything that is in existence, king of kings. There's a spiritual crown on his head, a physical crown on his head, heaven's crown on his head, earth's crown on his head. He comes to fight earthly battle of flesh and the spiritual battle. All of the victor crowns are on this one head. All the victory wreaths are Jesus's. They're all his. Of course, this ought to make us think most especially about that crown, which I think Jesus paid the highest cost to wear. The crown of thorns. Jesus did not come just to conquer as God's son. Jesus did not just come to overpower everyone in righteousness, although he could. Although he was the king who would wear the crowns of existence in the universe, he came to wear a crown of thorns and be mocked as the king of Jews. He came to die. He came to die on the cross for our sins so that rather than be conquered by him and his crowns, we might be saved by his blood shed by the crown of thorns. That's the kind of king that he is. Many diadems. Every realm is his. Number five, his names. Several names that he is referred to here, so these could be three different points. We see in verse 12, he has a name written on it, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Notice written on the forehead of the beast was a mysterious name. On the, on the woman, Babylon, was a mysterious name. But the name of Jesus is, is different. It's, it's his name in heaven, it seems. Some, somehow it's a name that only he knows himself. This is in contrast to the beast we're introduced to in Revelation that has these diadems, these ten crowns on his head. Remember that very first thing we learn about the beast in his introduction, chapter 13, verse 1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. It was defined by reigning in blasphemy all over the earth. But Jesus here is so high and so of heaven that no one knows this name but himself. He's also in chapter 9, verse 13. Look a few verses down. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That's his name. He, he is the Word of God. That's what you refer to him as. Chapter 19, verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. His, his name is Word of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. There is no realm that Jesus is not king over. Number six, his robe is dipped in blood. 
We saw that just then in verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. There's a couple of ways that this could go. Consider that this blood could possibly be his own blood for sinners and for the people of God. It's not the only possible interpretation, but it seems likely in that Jesus is coming into battle with a robe dipped in blood, but the battle seems, at least in the flow of this passage, to not have begun yet. So while it could be the blood of his enemies, it seems to possibly be a reference to his own blood that he shed for sinners, for the church, for his people. If this is the case, then trust this king. Trust this man crucified for you, a true man, the true king of all kings, is willing to be the savior of any who would come and give him reverence and trust and put their faith in him. He doesn't just come to shed blood. He comes first to shed his own blood. This is a savior king who does not come first to shed blood, but for first to shed his own blood to save his own enemies, those who have sinned against him. If you're wondering what Jesus is like, if you're reading this passage about wrath and fury and the wine press, and you're thinking all God wants to do is destroy everyone. God's just kind of a mean God. He's just like my mean parent. He's just like my mean boss, indiscriminately hating everyone. Just remember that before Jesus came to shed blood in righteous vengeance of God, he came shedding his own blood so that his own enemies those who had killed him even, could be forgiven. Maybe today you would turn in this moment and just think, I would think very highly of my own sin, how great a sinner I have been. I think, isn't it good that there is a king in heaven who has come to earth, died on the cross, shed his blood for my sins, that I could be forgiven, I could be a part of his kingdom of now and forever. Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. Number seven, heaven's armies are with him. Verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Notice the same language, similar, you used a few verses ahead for the, the bride who was in fine lemon, linen, representing their righteousness, their righteous deeds. And just like in the battle between Russia and Ukraine that is raging now, you see colors flying, Ukraine with the blue over the yellow flag. Maybe you see the, you've seen scenes with Russian military painting the, the letter Z on their military equipment. Well, the armies of heaven are arrayed in purity. They're arrayed in purity. They're righteous. They're godly. They're divine. They come and perfectly serve Jesus Christ in all of his ends. Righteous and holy, the war colors of heaven's army. Number eight, the sword and the iron. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And the descriptions in chapter 19, verse 15, points to the fulfillment of much Old Testament prophecy. During a tumultuous, uncertain time, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, prophesies that the Messiah will, quote, strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. 
Isaiah 49 verse 2 says, the servant says that God will make his mouth like a sword. This verse alone, chapter 19, 15, is a fulfillment of a reference of a host of Isaiah and passages from Psalms. Remember chapter 13, verse 5 through 7, what it said of the beast again. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Seems to be a connection between His blasphemous mouth and His making war on the saints. Notice how connected the words of the beast and making war are and how connected Jesus' words and His war is. The words that come out of his mouth are sharp, sword, which overcomes the nations, and he rules with an unbreakable rod of iron. What Jesus says, what he does will break nations apart and judge all men and women in righteousness. Number nine, see him in the treading of the winepress. Verse 15, continuing, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Perhaps this is the reason Jesus' blood is, or robe is dipped in blood. So mighty is the power of Christ, the Son of God, that the best picture for how he overcomes his enemies is a picture of a man crushing grapes in a winepress. This is a fulfillment of much prophecy. This is a word image that comes with all sorts of sights and sounds. The point being that Jesus is serving the justice, the wrath, and the fury of God himself. Oh, friends, know that there is a fury in God, a furiousness in his opposition to his enemies. This adds to the picture that the winepress is being treaded furiously, crushed. The only sight, the only other sight that could possibly make this sight We're rolling through the the art gallery of the book of Revelation. We come to see Jesus with eyes like a flame and a sword in his mouth. And he's treading the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The only other picture that could possibly give us any hope or security, any hope that we would not be the ones crushed in the fury of God's wrath would be the cross. Going back so many chapters later, going back to the introduction, going back to when Jesus was on the cross and he, Isaiah says, was crushed for our iniquity. Though he was without sin, he was crucified so that our sins would be forgiven. We have one of two options as sinners. One, Trust that Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God, 
crushed on the cross for you. That's Isaiah 53's language. Trust that, that your sins are forgiven because Christ was crucified for you. Or two, meet Christ when he treads the fury of the winepress of God's justice. It's our only two options. So I just encourage you to consider trusting Jesus Christ today. Pray to him asking for forgiveness of your sins today. Pray to God and say, I trust that Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was crucified for my sin, not his, that he arose from the grave and he is coming again one day to pay his full recompense. What's the point of the whole image of Jesus here? The crown, the eyes, the sword, the robe, the names. The application of all of these things is to the final battle of good and evil beginning here in this passage. Maybe we can actually begin a few chapters earlier. All the armies of heaven behind the king of kings coming in full battle at those who oppose him on the earth. If you can scan back from the person of Jesus, so we're, we're looking at in the art gallery, looking at this picture of Jesus. We've seen all of these aspects. When we zoom back out, we realize that Jesus is in a scene of war. I mean, the, the whole scene, this big you know, 20 foot by 10 foot painting in front of us is Jesus in this war scene. And we're going to see now what Jesus looks like when he goes to war against the spiritual forces of darkness and evil in the world and of the flesh of men and kings on the earth. Look at chapter 19, verse 17. Chapter 19, verse 17. Then I saw the angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called all the birds. Do you see how we, we transitioned here from just describing Jesus to now we're seeing almost like the art galleries come to life and this is, this is a 4K video here. I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that flew directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, there hasn't been too many birds flying overhead. There hasn't been too many birds being called down to eat the flesh of kings in the book of Revelation. We actually see this language multiple times through Scripture. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 28, for example, the second giving of the law before Israel is about to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. God tells Israel that if they, are diso if they will be disobedient to him, if they are not faithful to him, they will incur on themselves the curses that God has for the nations who oppose them. So the Lord says in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will cause you, if you disobey God, to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Just take that in mind. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead bodies shall be food for all the birds of the air, for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. 
Likewise, a few chapters later, when Goliath is coming to stand before David, this is Goliath's taunt to King David, to not yet King David. And Goliath says, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. That was his taunt. You'll be bird food in no time. It's the same as Israel's enemies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. God has foreseen his people on the way and during captivity, letting them know their enemies be eaten by the birds of the sky, and no one will be there to frighten them away. What does this mean in this moment, in this picture, for this angel who is standing in the sun to call the birds of the air and come to dine on the flesh of kings and of captains and mighty men? The battle's over, though it's not over. The angel is calling for the birds to come before the battle is even ended, letting them know this is about to be over quick. If birds have come to gorge on your flesh, you are dead. Ideally, the battle's over. You're not just dead. You are, as it says in Deuteronomy, a very gross sight. A very gross image. I mean, this is one of the paintings in the gallery of the book of Revelation where if it were an actual image, we might want to have our kids wait in the other room if they're just not quite ready yet. Birds are coming to peck flesh and eat it. No one is there to even offer the decency of shooing the birds off your corpse. No one's sticking around to bury the bodies. The birds are going to come have their fill. And the angel of the Lord calls the birds. They they didn't just smell the scent of the dead. They were summoned before the dead were dead. This is part of God's judgment to show what it looks like when you oppose God with your life. Perhaps it's not unlike vultures who are circling the dead. And the angel calls them ahead and says, all right, get ready. There's about to be a feast. This is a nod to the sovereignty and the confidence of God to call the birds before the battle is over. And at this point in the battle, it will not matter who you are. There is no pretense, no special treatment for kings or slaves, he says there at the end of that passage in verse 17. There's no pretense. All men, both free and slave, both small and great, all who are opposed to God, no matter if you are the the king, the president, the prime minister, or if you're the janitor, no one, no one will be other than what they are in their sin and their opposition to God when this day comes. All who are opposed to God and His Son will be on a level playing field when they meet the Lord Jesus Christ and His armies behind Him. But isn't it good that this is the same news of the gospel of Christ? The gospel isn't just for kings. The gospel isn't just for good people. The gospel isn't just for rich people. But no, if you are in Christ, there is no longer slave or free, barbarian or Scythian. There's no longer male or female. We all come to Christ as sinners and we're all saved as sinners. Likewise, when he comes in his judgment and the birds are called overhead to humiliate his enemies, and there will be no discrimination. 
the entire existence of everyone in this room will come down not to what office you own in the church, pastor, deacon, teacher, not what job you had at work, not what money you have or did not have, not about the home, not about how much of an influencer you were online. Who cares how many followers you have when you meet Jesus who's followed by the army of heaven and whose angels call the birds of the air? Everyone small and great will find their total existence determined by their relationship to Jesus. What we will find today is that we will either trust in Him today, repent of our sin, surrender our lives, confess that Jesus is Lord now, and be invited like we saw last week to the marriage supper of the Lamb, or to put in Revelation's graphic terms in God's perfect justice, we're going to be supper for the birds, which would be our just end for our sin against the King of Kings. Because He is faithful and true. He comes in righteousness to judge and to make war. We see the scene continue in chapter 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. We've seen the last couple of weeks this seems to me at least to speak to a final whole earth opposition to God and all his people. They gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who is in his presence they were, they were captured. They weren't killed. They were captured in war, prisoners of war. The false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. Remember those false miracles that tricked people into following the beast from chapter 13. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. They were sick. There was so much to eat. Now, I want to move to this really quickly. I think a question arises, is this a real battle? Is this a real battle? And there's so many ways to think about this in the, the, the realm of interpreting the book of Revelation. And I'm not going to try to like pinhole you into to my thinking here. Right? There's everything from, yes, this is a real battle in the sense that there, there's nations gathering and Israel's rebuilding the temple right now and you know, Russia's making their move and Iran's making their deals and everyone's kind of, we've got the 10 nations in the EU and they're all going to you know, come around. And we've got that interpretation. And then we've got on the other spectrum, the highly spiritual, idealistic interpretation. This is all spiritual. This is all demons and angels. This is all souls, right? This is all being depicted. And I'm thinking that most of the time through Revelation, there is a little bit of a tension of the two on purpose. But you can watch through and you can read kings of the earth, dwellers of the earth. This is not just spiritual, 
But the whole point of the book of Revelation is that what is physical is not just physical. We look back at the beast and those who worship the beast. This is how we understood those who, who the beast and those who worship him back in, Re, in Revelation chapter 13. We recognize the beast and those kings as idolatrous kingdoms who oppose God's people. They seem to be a summation or culmination of Satan's powerful work through earthly kingdoms. Probably experienced as religious state-controlled persecution of the church which the seven churches faced in the first century and will have various manifestations throughout time, including the first century, our time, the very end, and all times in between. Remember that the beast is opposed to the church, directly opposed to the people of God, opposed to the people of God by both power and by, excuse me, temptation. The first beast in Revelation chapter 13 was coming to conquer, to kill Christians, to make war on the saints and conquer them. The, the second beast is coming to deceive and try to trick Christians with, with false miracles that makes him look like he has the power of God, telling you that if you don't bow down and worship and you don't take the mark, you can't sell food, you can't buy food in the marketplace. And this whole movement of enemies against God's people from Jesus' resurrection until his ascension and his second coming is now coming into a culmination in Revelation 19. That, that movement of the beast against the people of God in Revelation 13 is coming to its culmination here in Revelation 19 and 20. The beast who has been imitating Jesus, imitating his authority, imitating his demand and rightful ownership of worship, imitating his power, is now coming face to face with Jesus himself. And some saints may die along the way. Some saints may starve along the way. But then the beast who was allowed for a while to make war on the saints and to conquer them, is going to meet Jesus head to head. Mano imano. One to one. Some of you have seen the reports this week about Elon Musk tweeting out to Vladimir Putin. I hereby challenge, this is Elon Musk, our new local electric car builder. I hereby challenge Vladimir Putin to a single combat. Stakes are Ukraine. <laughs> I, I don't know how to understand that. But I think about that and I think, you know, there's a real war in heaven and earth, good and evil. The beast has come upon Christ and the stakes of the whole earth. First and foremost, what this passage is doing is still saying the refrain all the way back from Ephesians, from Revelation 13, don't worship the beast. Don't give your life to another religion. Don't give up on Jesus. Stay faithful to him despite what it might cost you economically. Don't deny Jesus' name and his righteousness. Don't stop doing righteous deeds in Jesus' name to keep your job. Don't stay quiet about Jesus just in order to keep a table at your family for Thanksgiving. Imagine keeping 
company, and tables in this world, but missing the eternal marriage supper of the Lamb because we deny Christ and don't trust Him with our lives. This is the final culmination of endure, saints. Be wise, saints. Don't worship the beast. Don't worship the kingdoms of the world and their power. Don't worship the institutions of this world that want to oppress you and force you to pay a cost for following and trusting Jesus. Don't give up. Be faithful to Jesus Christ because He is faithful and true. He's coming. He's going to deal with it. He's going to make right all of the wrongs. He's going to judge everything in righteousness. This battle is real. I tend to think most of the things in this section refer to spiritual realities rather than earthly realities. There's an emphasis that direction. How some things are going to get played out, I can't be absolutely certain. But that does not mean we go, you know what? Okay, this is spiritual. It's not real. Careful. It's actually more real. That which is spiritual is more eternal. You see, we are part of the spiritual. Though we are flesh, we are spiritual. You may remember that that movie or maybe you read the book. I'm reading through the, the books, The Lord of the Rings. Halfway through the first book, Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo already has the ring, right? Spoiler, he's trying to take it to Mordor to get you know, rid of it and save the world. And every now and then, Frodo will put the ring on, right? Put it, he'll put it on, and then when he does, he immediately is transformed from the earthly realm that he's in, or the middle earth realm that he's in, and he sees another realm that's existing in the same space, but it, it's kind of like a spiritual realm. It's darker, it's grayer, there's evil, there's other things happening that you can't see with your eyes of the flesh. That's the whole nature of the book of Revelation. We are part of a spiritual realm, whether we can see it or not. We are spiritual creatures, a part of a spiritual realm. And really realizing we are spiritual isn't the problem. Listen, this seems to often come natural to us today. Barner Research suggests one of the most popular phrases to define people's spirituality in the last couple of decades is, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. We seem to not have a problem admitting that we're spiritual and that we want to be spiritual. But we tend to use that phrase to mean, I want to be spiritual, but not religious. I don't want to actually be defined by anything. I don't want to actually say anything's true. I'm spiritual but not religious tends to mean for you God is more abstract than embodied, more likely to occupy minds than the heavens and the earth. But what's noteworthy is that what counts as, quote, God for the spiritual but not religious is contested among them. And that's probably just the way those who are spiritually but not religious tend to like it, says Barna. They value freedom to define their own spirituality as what characterizes this group. We like spirituality. We just don't like our spirituality defined. 
or embodied, Barna says. This passage is calling every reader and listener to make a choice about Jesus Christ. There is no, you get to say, well, I'm spiritual, I just don't know about Jesus. Well, I'm spiritual, I just don't know about the church. I'm spiritual, I just don't know about the Bible. This passage is calling, if nothing else, to say you've got to decide if the Jesus of the the Bible is entirely fictional, unbelievable, throwaway, so metaphorical that he's of no use to us whatsoever, or all the the prophetic fulfillments, the virgin birth, his sinless life, his myriad of miracles, his crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead, they all prove that he is the king of kings and lord of lords who will come again to rule the earth. And that all that reality is Jesus' reality. That this return of the king is simply the continuation of the gospel in the New Testament. That Jesus is calling us to be spiritual and by being spiritual, have faith in him. Not just oppose religion. Jesus is at the center of everything in the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9 and 10 says, God making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. When it says that Jesus is going to come with flaming eyes, the sword in his mouth, the robe dipped in blood, he's going to overcome his enemies. And we say, well, it's symbolic. It does not mean that it is less real. It's not meaningful to us. It is all the more meaningful because it is in this spiritual sphere where Jesus will finally and forever have victory. And the many diadems says, you don't get to say, well, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. So, no, Jesus has crowns in every realm. He has victory in earth. He is crowned in heaven as the sun. And that which is spiritual is that which is truly eternal. And Jesus, or Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, I tell you this, brother's flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is a spiritual one and will exist in new spiritual embodiment forever. This world is passing away. 1 John 2 says it like this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world and its kings and its governments and its institutions will come to its final end when Christ comes in final victory. What do you think is going on in the world? What do you think is going on? Where is the world move? Where is time taking us? One of the things that we're learning through the book of Revelation And that we would learn as we stand and look at this image in the art gallery of Revelation is the astonishing lesson that we're in it. We're in it somewhere. This is the picture of the war that we are in, the war of the world. That There's a war being fought here between good and evil, between darkness and light. This is the war that is ramping up, the war that is coming, and the war that men are involved in. Everyone in the world is either your brother or sister in Christ or is giving their lives to the worship of the beast. 
There's no third way. There is no third way. There are no neutral parties in this war. There's no Switzerland in this war. Just recently, in response between the war of Ukraine and Russia, the, the Swiss banks took drastic measures. They unneutralized themselves and they began to freeze the bank assets of Russian oligarchs, which is incredible. I mean, the, the Swiss banks are the places that you put your money in the movie so no one can touch it. All of our thoughts about Swiss banks are unbecoming true right now. And yet, the Swiss ambassador to the United States, Jock Pittelloud, says, we have to explain Switzerland's position all the time. I mean, even very serious and very big newspapers in the U.S. spoke about Switzerland's shredding its neutrality which made us recoil in horror because we didn't. We didn't. They don't sound very neutral to me right now. But isn't that the refrain of our day? The belief that we can somehow be spiritually fervent but religiously neutral. I'm spiritual but I'm not too affiliated. I'm really concerned about spirituality, but I'm not too decided about concrete spiritual things. I'm spiritual, but I'm not going to really pick sides here. The most spiritual thing that we all do and that anyone can do is choose between good and evil in the world. And the way that gets worked out is choose between Christ or yourself. Christ or the evil in the world. There is no neutrality. Jesus will come, faithful and true, with his eyes like a flame, sword in his mouth, the armies behind him, and you will be behind him and with him, or you will be in front of him and meet his judgment. There is no neutrality. If nothing else, this passage is one big call to decide about Jesus today. And it is a great encouragement if you've been following Jesus and you are feeling like, wow, where is this? This world doesn't seem to be going toward Jesus' end. He's faithful. He rose from the dead. He will come again. Faithful, true, eyes like a flame, many crowns on his head, the sword in his mouth, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Also the king who was crushed on the cross for our sins, who wore the crown of thorns, who was mocked as the king of Jews so that he could save us from our sin. And when we come to believe in Jesus Christ, Paul says it this way, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of our beloved son. We're transferred. Believe in Jesus Christ. We transfer to his kingdom today. He will come. He will conquer as a king of kings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that though we deserve judgment and wrath, you are merciful and kind. 
that we have been enemies of the cross, that we have been enemies of God's righteousness. You sent Christ to die for our sins. We deserve our blood to be spilled. Christ's blood was spilled for us. That we have no sin that Jesus with his eyes has not seen. You are still willing to love us and for Christ to die for us. Would you help us to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ today?